Looking at the Constitution, you might find it hard to read the fine print of each article. Even with fine penmanship, the years of wear have made each section fade. Before you reach that fine print, the real meat of the Constitution, you have to pass by the preamble first. And there, at the top of the browning piece of parchment, sits three words. We, the people. But who exactly was the people? For most of the United States history, rights guaranteed in the Constitution were not guaranteed for women. It took 132 years just for women to get the right to vote. Yet at the time, there was no amendment to the Constitution that guaranteed equal rights based on gender. So in the case of constitutional law, were they really equal? The Constitution, as it was originally written, has nothing regarding equality based on sex. This is the exact reason why women needed an entire amendment to vote. Court cases through the decades continued to expand women's rights, but a full equal rights amendment remained elusive. Court cases through the decades continued to expand women's rights, but a full equal rights amendment remained elusive. That is, until a previously slain amendment rose from the dead, its resurgence would only bring about more questions of how we improve our union. The debate it sparked would encompass not only the legacy of this nation's founding document, but it would come to define the entire process of amending it. I'm Noah Barnell, and this is Podstitutional, the 50th anniversary special of the original Constitutional Podcast. Kaylee Blalick, the head chair of the Women's Studies Department at Brown University. Dr. Blalick, welcome. Thank you for having me, Noah. It really all started in 1920 when women were given the right to vote through the 19th Amendment. It was a major success for women in the United States. However, nowhere in the 19th Amendment did it ensure that men and women had equal rights and protection under the law. The National Women's Party knew that women obtaining the right to vote was only one small step into creating equality for all. Then, three years later, in 1923, the National Women's Political Party first proposed the Equal Rights Amendment. Leader Alice Paul authored the original amendment naming it the Lucretia Mott Amendment. Lucretia Mott was an early feminist activist and a strong advocate for ending slavery. She dedicated her life to speaking out against racial and gender injustice. The Equal Rights Amendment was a legal document meant to eliminate discrimination solely based on the foundation of sex. This amendment would take years to gain support through the, throughout the country. There were still those who believed women should not be guaranteed the same rights, but many who fought back stating the ERA would lead to gender-neutral bathrooms and women being drafted into the military. They argued that the Constitution as it was protected women with a special status. Just like the suffrage amendment, we see middle-class women were highly supportive of this amendment. I think a lot of people were surprised that these feminists would want more. For a lot of people at the time, it was still shocking women got the right to vote. From its conception in 1923, it would take almost 50 years before it was passed through the Senate. With the roar of second wave feminism behind it, the amendment managed to squeak through the House, and on March 22, 1972, the proposed 27th Amendment to the Constitution was sent to the states for ratification. Like all amendments before it, 
the ERA needed approval by legislatures in three-fourths, or 38 of the 50 states. By 1977, the legislators of 35 states had approved the amendment. Having only 35 states' approval was not enough for the ERA to be added to the Constitution. Deadlines were extended in hope to give states added time to ratify the amendment. However, there had been no additional states that approved the amendment. From that time on, many states had added or withdrawn their approval, but it was still not enough for the ERA to be ratified. All the blood, sweat, and tears of these women, from Lucretia Mott to Alice Paul, was for nothing. A rare occurrence in the history of amendments, where it was passed through the Congress and left to die in the states. But much like the women before them, they didn't stop. The deadline had passed, but in 1994, a Democratic representative by the name of Robert Andrews proposed the three-state strategy. The bill he proposed said that if the ERA got its three additional votes, the House would do everything in its power to get the amendment ratified. He didn't care about four states He didn't care about four states rescinding their ratification because just like time limits, it's nowhere in Article 5 of the Constitution. They were treading in murky water, just waiting. And wait, they did. The 36th state to ratify the ERA, Nevada, did not budge until 2017, followed one year later by Illinois, making the amendment one state shy of ratification. It would not be until the year 2025, when Jeb Bush became president of the United States. Virginia's newly elected Democratic legislature gave the last needed vote in order for the ERA to pass. Many women, feminists, and activists celebrated this monumental day in history. It was not the first time an amendment had taken a long and winding path to the Constitution. The 27th Amendment took 203 years to become law, so it was not unreasonable to think the Equal Rights Amendment could take less than half as long. But underneath all that celebration was a glaring issue. The original amendment was passed with a seven-year time limit. Now, almost 50 years after its time limit expired, there was one major question on everyone's mind. That question was whether or not it was legal to ratify the amendment. If we look back at the history of this amendment, we can see its original passage was crowded with the same mix of joy and sadness, as many people just didn't understand what a time limit meant on an amendment. I think the same confusion followed in 2025. Nobody was more confused by the passage than the states that did not ratify it. They believed they were being forced to embrace an amendment they believed violated all the norms of ratification. There was only one way the issue could be decided. So the day after Virginia ratified the ERA, North Carolina state attorney Christopher Jones sued the government, stating that time limit still stands and the ERA should not be enforced accordingly. Our next guest was a colleague of Jones and found himself a public figure at the center of the debate surrounding the ERA. He took a lot of emails, and I am glad to introduce former Congressman Johnny Ferguson. I appreciate you having me on, Noah. Congressman Ferguson, you took a lot of heavy criticism for your role in opposing the passing of the ERA. What I and most of our viewers would like to know is what was your motivation against the ERA in Jones v. United States? Uh, I understand the question at hand here, but my thought process going in wasn't specifically against the ERA. Then what was the thought process? My thought process and what I initially brought up in Congress and to the court was specifically that time limits should still stand when it came to the ERA. 
What I was thinking about was for the future references when a new constitutional amendment is proposed and ratified, if it is very controversial, there should still be a time limit. As time goes on, opinions change, people change, the country changes. For this reason, I believe time limits were a necessity for amendments. With Ferguson and Jones on one side, Senator Nancy Pelosi from California represented the views of many liberal Democrats at the time in the case. When the case first broke, on its surface, it was about time limits on amendments. But as the case unraveled, people started to notice that it was more about the ERA than time limits. Even though the main points made during the case were for time limits, everyone knew it was really about the Equal Rights Amendment. For Nancy Pelosi, she repeatedly would address in court that the ERA was still relevant and even more re relevant than it ever has been. She addressed that people like Alice Paul and the women of the National Women's Association didn't dedicate their lives for this amendment to be stopped by a time limit. Her main statement, trying to reach a mostly conservative Supreme Court, was that not once in Article 5 of the Constitution does it say time limits can be placed on amendments. Congress, in a way, just gave itself power to put a time limit on any amendment they wanted to. They felt that they had the power to make decisions on time limits, whether there was a time limit for an amendment or not. During the time when the ERA was first going through Congress in 1972, many feminists theorized Congress decided to put a time limit on the amendment because they practically knew the amendment would not be ratified by enough states during the time limit. During the case, we completely went off track from the main points by mentioning a woman like Alice Paul. The case was supposed to be about time limits, but once Pelosi made that statement, the whole country though they knew what the case was about. Again, my main purpose in the case was, was the motivation I had for time limits. The Supreme Court had declared them constitutional all the way back in 1921. I did not agree that we could just ignore the ERA's time limit. For that, I took heavy criticism. State Attorney Jones was openly against the ERA, as he thought women were already represented well enough within the Constitution, even though women were never mentioned. Once Pelosi made the argument about Alice Paul and past feminists, Jones struck back with the question, so what the hell is the 14th Amendment for? This statement alone flipped the tide of the case as Jones continually and continually would bring up the 14th Amendment. He would state that the amendment gave enough protection to women under the law as is. Even with the conservative court, during the first half of the case, it was known that time limits were going to be ruled unconstitutional. But with the strong case being made by Ferguson and Jones, the justices were changing their minds, and by the time of the decision, it was even a tie, four to four. The decision came down to Justice Gorsuch. Gorsuch was a conservative who everyone thought would rule in favor of time limits, which would send the ERA back to the drawing board. But surprisingly, Justice Gorsuch voted against time limits on amendments and made the decision five, four. In a statement later made by Gorsuch, he wrote, If we simply allow Congress the unlimited ability to inhibit the growth of these great states in any form, we most assuredly find ourselves at odds with the vision of our founding fathers. He continued, If we do not recognize the ratifications of these state legislatures set before us, then federalism itself is on trial. There, in the chambers of the Supreme Court, the, the ERA found its most unlikely ally. 
a conservative view of the Constitution. Gorsuch may not have even been a supporter of the amendment himself, but he firmly believed Congress should have limited power over the amendment process. I just let my head sink into my hands when they gave the ruling. Gorsuch told a state vying for its constitutional rights that it was trying to destroy federalism. It just left a bad taste in my mouth, but it was not over yet. And he was right. According to the Supreme Court decision Coleman v. Miller, it was up to Congress to decide if a law was still relevant after many years had passed. I called the White House that day and I said, Jeb, we need a unified front. President Bush was just coming into office as the whole affair went on. He came out of seemingly nowhere to grab the Republican nomination, campaigning on ideas of compromise and, as he and his brother put it, compassionate conservatism. He barely managed to get past Chelsea Clinton in the national election and was unable to appeal to many die-hard Trump voters. This was his chance to prove where he stood to his fellow conservatives, so he mobilized. What just days ago was a constitutional dispute became the most partisan debate in decades. Republicans held a slim majority in the Senate, but not the House. They needed a playbook. They took almost word for word the exact same argument we saw against the original ERA. The move the narrative from equality to gender-neutral bathrooms and women in the draft. It was the same battle we had all those years ago. While Republicans created their means of blocking the 28th Amendment, another front was building. I spent my whole life waiting for that moment to happen. When women got the right to vote, many people believed that the job was done. They believed that finally women had power just like men did. For many people, looking back at their great-grandmas, grandmas, aunts, and mothers, they see how women now become CEOs, women are more involved, and are out in the workforce. People did not think that women got mistreated, but they did. When I became leader of the Global Fund for Women, I promised myself I would play part of the ratification of the ERA amendment. That voice you just heard is Beth Sanchez, president of the feminist group Global Fund for Women, a group that focuses on sexual and reproductive health and rights, freedom from violence, economic justice, and leadership. There were so many debates over whether to ratify the amendment or not because of the time limit that it was given. This debate had been going on for years, but as soon as the last needed state ratified it, women started to rise up. Women around the world started sending us letters. We organized nonviolent protests and marches all over the country. I knew that even after the court case, it was not the end of it. Those men in Congress decided they knew what was right for all of us. It didn't matter what the states said or did. They just stood there pointed a finger and said, you have enough rights already. Sanchez was a powerful voice on the side of the Democrats. She regularly held marches with congressional leaders like Nancy Pelosi and AOC. She frequently got into t Twitter feuds with former President Donald Trump. The two would jab back and forth with Trump calling her a nastier woman than Hillary and Sanchez calling Trump back a plague on politics. While President Bush had tried to push a unified front claiming the amendment was unnecessary, he remained relatively quiet. It became clear he could not be lead the leading face of the Republican Party. Throughout the congressional battle, the loudest voices quickly became the most extreme.
He bungled it. He let his own people turn the optics against him. I felt like I wasn't part of the same political party as these people. If the case was about time limits, by the time we made it to the house, it was about putting women in their place. There was no way they could hide behind the blatant misogyny, so I started writing to Republican representatives. What did the letters say? I was honest. I told them, if you do not let this amendment pass, then every woman in the district would be marching straight to their office asking for their resignation. It was the death of the Republican Party or the ERA. For most of them, it was an easy choice. Sanchez's methods proved effective. Even Bush came out in support of the amendment. In a speech before Congress, he pleaded, though I may not agree with the process of the law or even the content, I cannot deny the will of the American people and neither can you. Public support for the ERA had grown so large the bill was able to pass through with a supermajority in the fall of 2026, cementing the 1972 bill as the 28th Amendment to the Constitution, declaring once and for all that regardless of gender, in these United States, all men and women are created equal. As soon as it passed, I cried. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Across the country, we saw women visiting feminist leaders grave sites. This woman, Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Ma, Alice Paul, this was their dream that we inherited and somehow we did it. With the passage of the ERA, it may not seem like anything changed. In many ways, they didn't. But now the Constitution itself reflected a sentiment not said, but believed by all, that we the people was anyone, regardless of race, class, or even sex. The fact that the Constitution now mentions equality, regardless of gender, is major. It guarantees a protection women never had before. But there will always be work to do to ensure these rights are kept, in the same way as the 14th Amendment. Feminist organizations wanted to ensure the 28th Amendment was followed. There are still issues within the country that we wanted to address. A big goal is to finally wipe out the gender, gap, the gender pay gap. As a result of the amendment, it would seem that slowly the gender pay gap was getting smaller and smaller. But as of today, women still earn 92% of what men make. Since 2018, the gap has only been altered by 70% from 85%. The fight for women's equality can only be described as a constant struggle. Some people wonder if it even has a definitive end. If you ask me, I think Alice Paul put it best when she said, when you put your hand to the plow, you can't put it down until you get to the end of the row. The ERA hit the soil in 1923, maybe even before that. And although the women who pushed that plow grew old and passed away, they were never alone. Even when they had reached that end of the row, as Paul described it, there would always be more young women, eager as ever, to pick up the plow and to start a row of their own.
Many thanks to this week's guest, Kaylee Blalick, a women's studies professor at Brown, former Congresswoman Johnny Ferguson, and Beth Sanchez, president of feminist group Global Fund for Women. Uh, another special thanks to Lillian Cunningham, the original host of Constitutional. As always, thank you to Dr. Rice, our producer here at the Washington Post. If you like the show, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this. And if you want to tell me personally that you're thinking of the series, I would love that. You can find me on Twitter at Noah Barnell. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes of Constitutional. <laughs>